we're going to turn in our testaments to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. So thankful to have each of you here this morning, assembled in the Lord's house. Thankful for our visitors, and also thankful for those of you that can join online. We'll begin reading this morning in Romans, the fifth chapter, and beginning in the twelfth verse. The word of the Lord says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, But sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by the one that sinned, so is the gift, for judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the, of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offenses might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through the righteousness unto eternal life, by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear, gracious, heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your righteous throne of grace this morning, Lord, knowing that we are undeserving of the least of thy mercies, knowing that we are sinners in and of ourselves, and we deserve your wrath, we deserve your indignation, we deserve your hot displeasure, but Father, we appeal to you in the name and in the blood of Jesus Christ, entering into the holiest of holies, and that's truly where we trust that we are at this morning, that we are not outside the the temple, that we are not simply in uh, the outer court, that we are not simply in the inner court, but this morning we trust that we have walked through the veil, separated by the death of Jesus, and we are at your mercy seat this morning, sprinkled uh, with his precious blood, and that we are in your very presence. 
and that your Shekinah glory hovers around us and the Spirit dwells within us and that you are making known unto us the riches of the grace in Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, you are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the beginning and the end. Father, you are the author and the finisher of our faith. Father, you are the first and you are the last. You are the great eternal one. You are the God of all power. You are the God of all knowledge. Uh, you are the God that is everywhere present and nowhere absent. So, Father, we trust in you. We, we rely upon you. Father, we cast all of our confidence upon your strong and your able hand. Father, we pray this morning that you would be with those of us who are sick, Father. That you would heal their mortal bodies. That you would cast out the sickness, Father, that holds them uh, in, oppress in an oppressive state. Father, we pray for those who are not with us. Father, those who have taken trips, that you will be with them, Father, uh, as they are on their way back home. Father, we pray for those uh, that have been away from us for a long time. God, we pray that you, would, uh, that you would burden their hearts to return unto us, that you would fill them with weighty conviction, Father, that they may return to the place that they have promised uh, you and us to abide in. Father, that you would just, uh, that you would just bring them back. Father, you know our hearts. You know the love that we have for them, and we know the love that you have for them, and we know that this is the place that you have designed for them to be. Oh God, may they see it uh, with their eyes and with their hearts, and may they be drawn back to this place. Father, this morning we pray uh, for this service. Father, we pray that your word would be shed abroad in our hearts. God, that your spirit would instruct us in the ways of truth. Father, preaching is vain unless you condescend to us, unless you fill these vessels of earth uh, with wisdom and, and, and majesty and power and glory. Father, uh, preaching is utterly useless. But Father, we know that when you fill us, when you fill these earthen vessels with your goodness, Father, that we can speak of things that are far above our mind's comprehension. God, we ask that you would just pour out your spirit in a double portion this morning. Help me to preach with that power and demonstration. Father, may the children that have assembled here this morning, all of us, be tuned in to your word and to your truth. God, may the truth have a long-lasting impact in our lives. May it transform us. May it deepen our relationship with you. May it give us a better understanding of ourselves and of the richness of the grace in Christ. We pray for this church that you would continue to add daily such as should be saved. Father, we pray for those that uh, are in this community that they would be burdened, Father, to come and seek the truth here. Father, for we know that you have placed the truth here. God, we pray this in the name of Jesus, and for his sake, and for his glory alone. Amen. <clears throat> We've read in our text this morning 
beginning in verse 12, and we're speaking this morning upon a very important doctrinal theme. If I was going to title this message this morning, it would be entitled, Why We Need Jesus. Why We Need Jesus. This morning we're going to be covering the effects of the fall of Adam. What Adam did in the garden and the ripple effects, not only the immense weight and the, uh, the immediate repercussions of his sin in the garden and the devastation of that. I want to look at the devastation of Adam's sin in the garden and, and how that relates to us because we cannot detach ourselves from it. Uh, because that was a monumental uh, moment in the history of humanity. Our history, our lives, our lives personally were affected by the sin of Adam in the garden. And not only uh, was there an immediate repercussion, an immediate effect in the life of Adam and in his subsequent descendants that would proceed forth from his loins, but also, there was a ripple effect, and I view it kind of like an earthquake. You have ground zero, the moment that the tectonic plates are shifting uh, beneath the earth, and you have that, that immediate ground center uh, boom, and the earth is beginning to break in that location. But far after the tectonic plates have shifted, there are ripple effects that go out throughout the earth and you can feel them for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles from that initial uh, breaking of the earth. And so it was with Adam. There was a devastating effect when he sinned in the garden, but then there was a ripple effect that uh, was transposed on us as his descendants. So let's start in verse 12, and it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. And that's very important. Sin was not a cooperative, uh, uh, this was not the result of Adam and Eve's cooperation. Rather, this was a, a, a result of Adam's transgression. Not that they sinned together and that somehow through their sin together, sin entered into the world. No, the record is that by one man, sin, and that man we know was Adam, the very first man that ever lived on the earth. Right, Levi? Uh, God made... Adam of the dust of the ground, remember Levi? And he breathed into his breath, into his nostrils, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And so God took that man, placed him in the garden, and before he created Eve, he gave Adam a law. He says, of all the trees of the garden that I've created and I've placed you in, you are freely able to eat of there. Remember we talked about last time that man was in a rich environment. 
God put the best of the best in the Garden of Eden. I mean, you know, we, we, are, we are blessed with trees that are the, and flowers and things that are unique to our location. But it's my belief that God took all the best out of all the locations that He had created on the earth and put them in a central location in the Garden of Eden, much like a botanical garden. Botanical gardens do that. They take all these unique flowers from around the world and they bring them together in one place so you can walk through, kind of like Callaway Gardens, and see all the beautiful richness of, from around the world. Well, that's, that's how I believe the Garden of Eden was. God put all the most beautiful and, and best tasting and, and, and beneficial foods and trees and, and fruits in the Garden of Eden. And so man was there in a rich environment. Right, and he gave him one law: of all the trees of the uh, uh, of the garden, you can freely eat. I put them here for your benefit, for your pleasure. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the midst of the garden, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He gave him a prohibition, and he gave him the consequence of breaking that prohibition. Man could not claim ignorance. He knew what the consequence was for breaking the law of God. Man knew that. Adam knew that. When God formed Eve, of course, Adam was, was to communi communicate that law unto Eve. And she took and she ate, but it was Adam. Adam, the one that God gave the law directly to, that was liable for the sin and breaking the commandment because not only uh, was he the one that God gave the law to, but he was also the head of his family. He was the man. He was the authority figure in the, in the marriage. He was the leader in the marriage. And so it says, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world. And that sin entered into the world, and, and, and it had two effects. Number one, it defiled man. It made man sinful, dirty, wicked. But on, also on that, on that aspect, because it said that man died in the day that thou eatest thereof, Thou shalt surely die. And the Hebrew is, the original language there is, In dying, thou shalt die. So, in dying, you will die eventually. So there was a death. And that death was a what we call a spiritual, but more importantly, a moral death. He died morally uh, to the righteousness that God had created him in. And so uh, Adam died, and, 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 and sin, and, and not only that, but there was a guilt that passed upon man. There was a, a guilt that entered into the world. Now man is guilty before God. He's no longer righteous. He's no longer viewed in God's eyes as upright, as doing everything right, as perfect. Now he's viewed in God's eyes as a criminal 
that deserves to be punished. He deserves the full weight of the sin and the defilement that he has brought upon himself. He has now deserved the repercussions of breaking the law of God. So one man, sin entered into the world, and death by, and so death, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. Death passed upon all men. This was a spiritual, as we already mentioned, a spiritual or a moral death. No longer is man upright in his ways, but he is steeped in sin to God. He is no longer alive to the spiritual nature that he was created in. He was created in the image of God to do good, to love, uh, to be kind, uh, uh, to, uh, to be just, to, to have mercy, and uh, to, to work in a way that pleased the Father. He was created in that way. Now he's dead to those things. He has no spiritual capacity to those things. Now he hates those things. He's dead to them. And not only that, but a, a, a corporal death. In, in other words, Adam is going to die physically. In dying, thou shalt die. So in dying morally, he's going to die physically. And what happened in, in Adam's life? Adam died, right? He got to 900 and something years old, and he died. So the, the effects of that is seen in Adam's life, that death certainly did pass upon Adam. That was the, the result of Adam's sin. But not only that, he incurred to himself and all of humanity, and, the, and notice that the effects transpire to all of humanity. The, the moral death, the corporal death, but also an eternal death. Not only uh, are we dead morally, dead corporally, but when we die, now we are being subjected to an eternal death. And death is separation. That's what death is. Uh, morally, we are separated from the righteousness of God, the righteous standing before God. And, and, and corporally, our spirit and our soul is separated from our body. But in... Uh, our eternal death, our soul, spirit, and body is separated eternally from God in a place that is working out a punishment to fit the crime. And that has been passed upon all men. That's a judgment. That's what that is. That's a judgment. That is God passing that upon all men. That is the result of Adam's guilt, of Adam's condemnation. And he says, for all have sinned. So death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. In the original translator's notes, the, 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 the writers of the, the, that translated the King James Version, they were very intelligent men, they, they knew uh, language very well. And in the Greek, this can be rendered two different ways. The way that they've translated it does not do injustice to the Greek text. I want you to understand that, that we can arrive at the same conclusion based on the context. 
But in the translator's notes, what, he, what they remark that this for all to have sin means is that in him all sin. In him all sin. And, and when you come at it from that mindset, you can see how the for that all have sin would relate to that, how that they mean the same thing. Uh, what this means is, is that in Adam, Adam is what is known as theologically, uh, and that's what we've been studying here is our theological concepts, our great doctrines of the Bible, is what is known as the federal headship of Christ. This is what this doctrine is. And what that doctrine teaches is that God created man, God created Adam, and God created Adam to represent all of humanity because all of humanity was in Adam through his DNA. In other words, we all came from Adam, right? Uh, we all came from his loins. He had children, they had children, they had children, and so on and so forth, all the way down to where we are today, and we are Adam's children. And so Adam is our family head, and, and that's how God viewed family units. He viewed families in their heads. You remember the story of Achan. Achan took uh, of, the, of the Babylonian garment and the, the gold and the silver from Jericho that he was told not to do. He hid it in his tent. And when that judgment was passed upon him, what, who else did it pass on? His whole family. Why? Because he was the head and the representative of his family, and they did that at God's direction to show how God operates. God views us all as heads of our respective families, and so whatever the head is guilty of and incurs upon himself, it affects the whole family. Adam therefore sinned in the garden, he transgressed God's law, and he became guilty in the eyes of God, deserving of wrath. And that judgment, that judgment before God has been passed upon all men. It's as if, it's as if we have all come before into the courtroom of God and the gavel has been slammed down of guilty deserving of death. You understand that? That's, as, that's how it is. And, and we can look at this, verse 15. He says, for, uh, uh, he says, but not as the offense, so all throws it. For if the, through the offense of one, many be dead. Let's drop on down to verse 16. He says, and not as it was by, that, uh, by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment, the judgment, what judgment? The judgment of God. For the judgment was by one. Who was that? That one was Adam. The, the, the one was Adam to condemnation. God passed a judgment on Adam to condemnation, but not only unto Adam. Paul is re referencing this to us. The judgment was passed upon us to condemnation. He says, uh, verse uh, 18, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Did you catch that? 
the judgment came on all men, all men, to condemnation. In other words, we're all condemned in Adam. And that is respective of who we are. Uh, there is no difference. So, so this is one point I want to make. We do not choose Adam to be our personal center. Right? You didn't you didn't you weren't born into this life and say, I'm choosing Adam to be my personal representative and personal center. No, God set him up as your representative. And because he sinned, you are guilty. You're guilty because you were in him. Because the condemnation passed upon all men. And so we're all guilty in Adam. And this means that every person, regardless of life circumstance or age development, is guilty. From the old to the unborn. I want you to understand that. From the oldest to the unborn, all of them are condemned in Adam. Because death, the condemnation passed upon all men. In other words, the judgment. Condemnation means the sentence. When, when you go into a courtroom and they hear the case, they declare you guilty or not guilty. When they declare you guilty, they have condemned you. And then it's just a matter of sorting out the punishment to fit the crime. Then you go to a sentence hearing. Then you go and, and, and you hear what the judge has determined your sentence is going to be based upon a condemnation sentence that has already been given. So God has declared us guilty in Adam. In Adam, we are as good as being declared guilty, and that is from the oldest person to the youngest person. We are guilty simply by being Adam's child. What does that mean? That means we all need Jesus the same. That means that, that, that the older people, well, yeah, they need Jesus. When you get old in life, yeah, you need Jesus. But I'm still young. I don't need Jesus yet. That's a lie. No, children are condemned in Adam. They need Jesus. And you say, well, what about the age of accountability? It doesn't exist. As by one man, sin entered into the world and death passed upon all men. The condemnation passed upon all men without exception. And you will not find an exception given in the word of God. There is nothing in the Word of God that even remotely suggests that children are not accountable for their sins. No, they're guilty in Adam. And how do we know that children are liable for sin and, and, that, and that Adam's sin has declared them guilty? You want me to tell you? They die. <laughs> right? If they were not liable for Adam's transgression, children wouldn't die. Make sense? What was the sentence for Adam's sin? Death. 
If death affects children, then the guilt of Adam's sin has passed upon them. That's logical, folks. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. So children need Jesus. Children need Jesus. Old individuals need Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. We need Jesus. Now, the remaining of my time, I want to deal with the ripple effects. So we talked about Adam's federal headship and how his guilt is transposed onto us simply because he sinned. But now I want to look at how Adam's sin, aside from our guilt in him, has affected our lives personally. What has been the ripple effects of this monumentous moment in the history of humanity? Well, so, let's ask this question. What has it affected in our lives? What has it, what has it altered? What has it turned? Let's look at Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. I want to look at God's record of those that were before God destroyed the earth. Before God destroyed the earth, what he says about humanity. This is directly after Adam's sin. It says in verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every, every imagination... Uh, the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God looked into the heart of humanity, into the mind of humanity, and that's, that's what he's dealing with here, the thoughts, the imaginations of your mind, what you think about, what you imagine, what you... Uh, what you, uh, const- uh, what, what you come up with in your mind. I was looking for another word that left me. But what your mind and, and, and the gears in your mind come up with, the imagination of your heart, what is that? The thoughts of your mind, because that's what, how the word heart is used here, are, was only evil continually. The mind of all of Adam's descendants was no longer pure. It didn't think purely. It didn't think righteously. It didn't think in conjunction with God's holiness. The mind, the way you think, was only evil continually. It was a constant flow of wickedness in the eyes of God. And that's how it is today. And you know this to be true, right? When you think, oh, well, I look pretty good on the outside. People think I'm pretty righteous on the outside. Boom, boom, boom. Your mind fires and there's all kind of wicked and abominable thoughts in your mind of wicked actions and and wicked dispositions and wicked desires. And it just is there and it's undeniable. 
But in, in our lost and depraved condition, without Jesus in our lives, without because Jesus does make a difference in our lives. I want to go ahead and make that point very plain. But before Jesus enters in our lives, our thoughts toward God and toward Him are only evil. There are no good thoughts in our minds. And I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. But to further emphasize this, let's look at God's further dealings here in Genesis 8:21. It says, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. He says that children, children enter into this world with a corrupted mind. So the effects of Adam's sin is not that somehow we are born pure into this world and we're corrupted by our circumstances, but rather we're born little heathens into this world and our minds are corrupted from the get-go. And we're going to look at that more in just a moment. But he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discern neither can he know them for they are spiritually discerned man is so corrupted by the sin of Adam by the transgression in the garden that he cannot conceive of spiritual things anymore his good thoughts towards God so now man views God he views him at enmity Proverbs chapter uh, 15, verse 26 says that the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination. And in verse, verse 7, I'm sure many of us are familiar with this passage, but he says, let's back up to verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death. It's the result of Adam's sin in the garden. Is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity at, with God. It, it, it's at variance with God. It's at war with God. That's what that literally means. It's in opposition to God. For it is not subject to the law of God. It refuses to be subject to the law of God. God's law is good. It is the standard of morality. It is the standard of holiness. And it says, neither indeed can be. So God creates laws to manifest His holiness, His righteousness, and you know what our mind does? Our mind in its state of carnality, in, in the state of death, without Christ dwelling in our heart and in our mind, repels everything righteous. 
It doesn't want to think about good things. It doesn't want to think about God. It wants to sin, 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 because that's what it enjoys to do. And, and, and that's why there's hostility today in all the communities that are openly in rebellion against God. Yesterday, we went for our anniversary trip to uh, Columbus uh, to enjoy the day by ourselves, just me and Leslie. And we get there and we begin to walk downtown and, uh, because they were having a marketplace show. Well, we make it into, into downtown and we begin to walk. And immediately, when we enter into the place where they have all the tents set up and all the shops, there are rainbow flags everywhere. And men dressed as women and women dressed as men. And it was a full-on parade. Now, if I would have stood up, and that's wrong, guys. God did not create them that way. And it is an abomination in the sight of God. And I'm not afraid to say it. But if I would have stood up, and I would have began to simply re to read Scripture in the middle. They had a stage set up where all these people were up giving speeches about that lifestyle. And, and they were just promoting that lifestyle to a whole slew of people. And what they were doing, make no mistake about it, they were preaching their religion. That's what they were doing. But if I would have got up on stage and I would have simply began to read Scripture, no commentary, but if I would have simply begin to read Scripture in the places where God says that He condemns that sin, they would have been mad. They would have got angry. They would have begun to become hostile. Why? Because they love their sin and they want to stay in it and they hate everything that opposes their sin. You understand, that's what depravity does to people. It doesn't just, it doesn't just uh, want you to leave them alone. It wants to make sure that you accept their sin. They want you to approve their sin. And that's why they're so hostile. And guess what? We're no better. Because in our dead state, you choose the sin that you were privy to, that you were prone to, and you would have defended it to the last if somebody would have, would have called you on it. Because that's our mind. Our carnal mind is enmity. It's in opposition to God. And unless Christ changes that, it'll always be. Because there's no way to infiltrate that mind and get someone to change their mind. Why? Because it's enmity. Some people don't get that. Some people think you can go around and change people's minds. No, God has to change their mind before you can change their mind. <laughs> right? God has to give them the ability to conceive of these things to see their own sinfulness. So their mind is, hard, is hardened. Uh, their, their mind is corrupted. Not only their mind, but their heart. Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 10. <clears throat> Proverbs 21, verse 10. He says, The soul of the wicked desireth evil. 
And that goes back to our passions. You know, our heart, our, our mind is the way that we think, and it's the cognitive side of our actions. But there's also an impulsive side. Would you agree with that this morning, that there's things we do by impulse? We don't think about them, we just do them. And, and, and there's, there's, there's sin within us that just creates an impulse in our heart and a desire in our heart, and it just happens. It's just there. And that's because your heart's corrupt. Your, your, your desires are corrupt. And that's why we sin by impulse. So our heart and our mind, and because of this, of course, logically, because our heart and our, our mind and our heart is corrupted by the sin of Adam, Micah chapter 7, verses 2 through 3, the good man is perished out of the earth. There is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with the net, that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh and the judge asketh for reward. The great man, he, is, uh, he uttereth his mischievous, mischievous desire, so they wrap it up. Because his mind and his heart is corrupt, his actions proceed and they are corrupt. Pro, uh, Psalms chapter 39 verse 5 tells us that man at his best state is altogether vanity. Man in his lost, deplorable condition, at his very best, is utterly sinful. He's utterly sinful. We're not simply sick with sin. We're dead in it. We're dead in it. Job chapter uh, 15 and verse 18 Verse 16, sorry. Job 15, verse 16. He says, let's, let's back up to verse 15. Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. That's speaking of the holiness of God. Now, in contrast to God's holiness, man's depravity. How much more abominable and filthy is man that which drinketh iniquity like water you got to have water drink it every day constantly in order for the body to function that's how we sin especially in our depraved state in a state without Christ so man is corrupted through and through so who does this affect whose mind is corrupt whose heart is corrupt who because his mind and heart is corrupt produces sinful actions. Well, when does this begin? And this is going to answer the question, is our sinfulness a product of nature or nurture? Are we sinners as a product of our environment, as the Pelagians would have you believe? There was a man by the name of Pelagius in the early days of Christianity, and he promoted the idea that man is sin, sinful, that man is born good, but he becomes a sinner by the product of his sinful parents raising him in sin. 
But the Bible teaches something else. Psalm verse 58, chapter 58, verse 3. The wicked are estranged, and that word strange, estranged means alienated or made strange. It means to be separated. They're separated, they're alienated from God. From when? From the womb. From the early stages of development in their mother's body, they are made sinful. They are made having all the innate desires of a man in sin. And this is manifest how? They go astray as soon as they be born speaking lies. The proof that they are alienated in their mother's womb comes when they're born and they immediately begin to sin. Let me tell you something. Right now, I got a one-year-old. And Jude has already figured out how to scream at you no, how to pitch a fit when he doesn't get what he wants, how to hit his brothers when his brothers do something that he doesn't want, and he's one. I've got news for you. If I did that as an adult, that would be sinful, right? If I walked up to somebody and punched somebody in the nose when they had something that I wanted, that would be wrong, <laughs> right? And if somebody told me no, if I, if I threw things around the room and screamed and yelled in their face, that'd be sin. It'd be sin. Well, it's just as sinful for a one-year-old to do it as a 35-year-old, okay? Just as sinful. So their sin nature is manifested by their sin. Their sin does not make them sinners. They're sinners and they produce sin. David would say this further in Psalms chapter 51, verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and sin, did my mother conceive me. And as we've already yet read in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21, that the imagination of mankind is corrupted from their very youth as a child. This state of death, this state of depravity and alienation and separation from the things that are good, God created us good, but now we're separated from that goodness and we desire only sinful things in our dead state. And this is important that you get this, and this is why this is one of the great doctrines of the Bible, because it tells you exactly what God did for you in the process of salvation. We're going to look at God's work on the cross and how Christ was our representative as Adam was, and that he was a federal head. And we're going to look at the Spirit's work in regeneration and how he deals with the ripple effects of Adam's sin in our personal lives. And how he changes our minds, our hearts, and our actions. We're going to look at those things. So this is important that you get this. But I want you to understand the fullness of, of man's sin. This state of death and our moral corruption was state, was such that it altered a state that is irreversible by man. And here's the reason it's irreversible. We cannot change 
from evil to good because the desire to change from evil to good is not there, right? In order for someone to change one habit, let's say a bad habit. Maybe they got a bad habit. Maybe they drink five soft drinks in a day. That's not good for you. In order to change that, and I broke some bad habits in my life. I have. In order for me to break that bad habit, I've got to want to break that bad habit first. Right? Well, if the desire is not there, it's never going to happen. Because I'm wanting to continually pursue that habit in my life. Well, the Bible tells us that man in this state of deadness has no ability to even understand the state that he's in to have that desire, and he certainly does not have that desire. This is seen in uh, John chapter 8 and in verse 42. The Lord Jesus speaking to the Pharisees in this particular instance, John 8 and 42. He says, and Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Now listen to this. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Now we learned in grammar school that cannot implies ability. He says, why do you not understand my speech? Why are you not comprehending what I'm saying to you? And he says, well, it's because you cannot hear my words. And you remember when Jesus would appeal to the crowds. He would say, he that hath an ear, let him hear. He that hath an ear, let him hear. He that has been given an ear, let him hear. Because not everyone has an ear to hear. The ones that he was talking to at this moment didn't have a spiritual ear to hear the spiritual words that Jesus was speaking because they were dead in sin. They couldn't understand what Christ was saying. If you were... Uh, he says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father... You will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's word. Ye therefore hear them not. Notice the order. You hear them not because you're not of God. He says, you're not of God, and because you're not of God, that means you, have, you don't have the ability to hear God's word. Because you're stooped in sin, your mind is an enmity of God, it's in opposition to God, and you will continually to resist that unless God has grace. John chapter 5, verse 40. John chapter 5, verse 40. He says, ye will not 
Come to me that ye might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. Again, man in his deplorable, depraved condition has been steeped in sin to the point. He is so sinful and so controlled by sin that he cannot understand God's work. He can't understand his need of salvation. And he has no desire to be saved from that which he enjoys. You understand? Let me say that again. He has no desire. You will not come. The will is our desire. You will. You don't want to come. You will not come to me that you might have life. Jesus is saying you have, you have no desire to be freed from that which you enjoy. God has to change your heart first. He has to save you before any of this has changed. Now, Let's return to our passage, our text of Scripture in Romans chapter 5. And I want to end our comments this morning. Romans chapter 5. So let's recap before I end this message. We are guilty and condemned to death by Adam's judgment. Adam sinned in the garden. God created him as our representative. He was the head of our family. Adam sinned. He broke the law. And by one man, sin entered into the world, and the condemnation for that sin was passed upon all men. So we're all equally deserving of the physical death that we get and the eternal death that we deserve. We all deserve hell. There's not a person alive that does not deserve hell, every one of us. And that is the condemnation that we face in Adam. We're guilty in him. But not only so, our, our bodies, our soul, and our spirit has been so morally corrupted that our mind thinks evil continually. Our heart has an impulse that just sins because it has the impulse to sin. At our best state, in our best condition, we're just sinful. Man is a sinner from the womb. And man has no ability or even a desire to be changed from the state that he's in. He can't hear God's word and he has no desire to change. Because he loves his sin and he wants to stay in it. He says in verse 13, for until the law was in the world, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. And what he's talking about there, let me make this, he's talking about sin is not imputed to their mind, not to their beings. In other words, they, they didn't feel the sting of sin in their conscience because they were unaware of the law that they had broken. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. This, this tells us that sin, the sin of Adam, was imputed to them, was laid to their charge because death reigned. 
But it says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. The sin of Adam has brought us into the submission of sin so that we are unable to resist the tyranny of sin in our lives. Sin is a king. Sin is a tyrant. And it's, it's not a good tyrant. It forces us many times to do, as Paul says, what I don't desire to do. Now that we're saved by grace. But sin, because of salvation, shall no longer have dominion. And that's what we need. Because... Sin is a tyrant. I need a captain of salvation. I need a conquering king. I need King Jesus to come and to save me from that which I do not and cannot, I, I, from which I cannot deliver myself and I have no desire to deliver myself. I want you to understand, if Christ does not save you, in your heart, listen, you'll never want to be saved. If you desire salvation, it's because you're saved. It's because, because the mind of a, of a dead alien sinner is at, is at enmity with God. And I'm thankful that, that Jesus is a conquering king who comes in and saves his children from things that they don't even know they need to be saved from and gives them the power to live a victorious life. We're going to look at the victory of Christ in further messages. That wasn't my focus this morning. My focus this morning was to take you down a path to show you not just that you need Jesus to help you along. Not that you just need Jesus to point you in the right direction or give you a helping hand. But that you need Jesus to save you completely because you are so corrupted in your heart so at, in opposition to him that if God simply extended a life raft, you would swim the other direction as fast as you could. We need a savior because Adam has made us guilty under the condemnation of death and we have sin reigning and ruling in our lives. But thanks be to God, there are moments of grace when he does save. And we're going to look at those moments in further messages. May the Lord bless you, keep you, cause his face to shine upon you, and give you all supreme peace.